You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have to spend time in your word. We ask that you would bless now as we open your word. Lord, please let it affect us and have its, have its uh, have us respond how you want us to. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, number five, reasons to believe the resurrection of Jesus. What justification can Christians offer in contrast to Hindus, Jews, Muslims, or secular individuals? Does everybody know what secularism is? What is secularism? I believe in the man upstairs, and I'm a good person, and I just don't do anything really bad. That's basically secularism. Okay, It's not necessarily atheism. It's just I'm not committed to God, so to speak. Okay, um, If God's there, I need him. So... There was a book that I read it while I was in Andrews um, called The Almost Christian. Anybody here ever heard about it? Yep. And young people today espouse a, a lot of young people, a lot, not even young people, a lot of people espouse a picture of God where he is like a butler. Where if we need something, then we call him, right? It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's, that's, that's what he calls it in, in, in that book. And so those of you with Adventist background know what all that means. Okay, so what, what justification can Christians offer in contrast to Hindus, Jews, Muslims, or secular individuals for thinking that the Christian faith is the correct religion to subscribe to? We have tried to give you reasons to believe that the Christian world religion is the correct religion religion to subscribe to, and there's a lot of reasons why, even more than what we can give this week. The answer, the clearest answer to that question is the resurrection of Jesus. No other world religious leader has died and resurrected. Okay? You can go to Muhammad's tomb, and it would say occupied. You can go to Buddha's tomb, occupied. You can go to uh, all the, the world religions, Leaders, their tomb says occupied. But if you go to Jesus' tomb, empty. Why would you follow a loser? Amen? All right. So tonight or this morning, we're going to look at the Bible as simply a historical book. We're going to try to let go of our assumption that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And we're going to look at the history of Scripture and the history of everything that surrounds the resurrection of Jesus Christ from a pure historian's perspective. The reason why we're going to do this is because the death of, and, uh, and resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested to points of history, like 9-11, like JFK. Okay? That resurrection and the empty tomb is one of the best attested to facts of history. It is firmly anchored in antiquity. G.B. Hardy said in his book Countdown, it says there are only two essential requirements has anyone ever cheated death, and is it available to me? Let us survey the record. Confucius' tomb, occupied. Buddha's tomb, occupied. Mohammed's tomb, occupied. Jesus' tomb, empty. Argue as you may, but for me and my purposes, there is no point in following a loser. 
Amen? <laughs> Next, we go to Tacitus. Tacitus is one of the most famous Roman historians, and he writes of Jesus of Nazareth in several places. He says um, here, and the Roman historian and Senator Tacitus referred to Jesus, his execution by Pontius Pilate, the existence of early Christians in Rome, and his final work, Annals, Annals which was written around 116 uh, AD, book 15, chapter 44. So that there was a person named Jesus, and he was from Nazareth, is as attested to it in history as Abraham Lincoln's life. Okay? So when we say that we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God because the Bible says that, that is not an acceptable answer. Okay? If we assume that because the Bible says that Jesus resurrected, then he resurrected, that's not going to hold any weight with any secular individual or a, a, a Muslim individual. Because I don't know if you understand this, but Muslims in the Quran, and I think two places, they believe that Jesus went to the cross, but before he died, he was taken off. And a common criminal was put there in his place, and the criminal died. Okay? Because Jesus is the second biggest prophet in the, the Muslim faith. And I think it's somewhere around Surah 321 in, in that area where it says that Jesus would not die and a criminal would be put there in his place. Wow. Now, the problem with that is that um, the scriptures say to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, is because there is no light in them. Where in the scriptures does it say that the Messiah would be crucified and die and then resurrected? All throughout the Old Testament, right? So the, the Old Testament says, the law and the prophets say that the Messiah would go to the cross, die, and resurrect on the, on the third day, right? Three day change is not necessarily 72 hours, you understand. So so you have the scripture saying that he would die, he would resurrect, and then be taken off to heaven. But then you have the Quran saying that Jesus would not die, and but someone else would take his place. So supposedly, the, uh, the angel Gabriel showed up in a cave to Muhammad and gave him um, all of these recitations, which is what I believe the word Quran means. And he wrote everything down, this angel Gabriel said, and that's how you have the Quran. Okay. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is what? No light, no light in them. So if the Bible is the word of God, then the angel Gabriel is a demon who appeared to Muhammad. Because if those scriptures say that Jesus would die and resurrect, but they say that he would be taken off the cross before he died and live into his old, old life, which is true. Right. Okay, that's, that's the point. Without the resurrection of Jesus, without the death of Jesus, Christianity is completely worthless. And it is just a crutch to get through life with. Okay? So from history, we can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ did die and that he was raised from the dead. This is from Josephus, um, from his book, Testimonium Flavinum, uh, Flavius Josephus Testimonies. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds, and that he was a teacher of such people 
as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them spending um, a, th a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and about a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, still to this day has not disappeared. So these are historical sources that testify to the fact that a person named Jesus lived, Pilate had him condemned to death, and he resurrected. So the fact that Jesus lived and he resurrected is a proven point in history, just as if you are sitting here today. So the truth of the, truth of the matter is this. Christianity stands or falls on the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's not that somebody died and resurrected. It's that Jesus died and resurrected. Okay, So the claims of Christianity really hinge on Jesus actually resurrecting. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. For the claims of Christianity hinge on Jesus actually dying on the cross and resurrected. Okay? So Jesus himself claimed that he was the resurrection, was a key identifying mark of his identity as the Messiah of the Old Testament in Bible prophecy. Mark 8, verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days do what? Rise again. Okay, John 2, 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the resurrection of Jesus was a very important point, even to Jesus. Amen? Verse 20, Then, Jesus, then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. So notice here, yep, they believe the scripture. So notice here that Jesus confirms that he would die, but that he would also rise again. Okay? That's an amazing claim because how many die? Everyone. Right? The wages of sin is death. The punishment for wickedness is not dying the first time, it's dying the second time. So everyone is going to probably die at least once, except, you know, Moses and Elijah and the people who are translated, and you get that, that part. Okay, so it's like this. If Jesus did not die and resurrect, then we would have no reason to believe anything else that Jesus said. That's why the resurrection is so important, because the resurrection is what gives credence to everything that Jesus did or said. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died according for our according for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, 
that he rose again the third day <coughs> according to the scriptures. Verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last, he was seen by me, also born out of one of due time. Verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Amen. So according to what we just read, did Paul believe that the resurrection was essential yes. to Christianity? Yes. Absolutely. So according to the Apostle Paul, without the resurrection, faith is worthless. So he continues on in verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses. So he said, if Jesus didn't resurrect, then we're all a bunch of liars. We're false witnesses of God because we, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Then it gets even bigger. The resurrection at the second coming hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then we, for those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. In other words, you're going in and that's it. Verse 19, if in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiful. So if the, if the dead do not rise, then Jesus does not rise. And if Jesus doesn't rise, then no one else is going to resurrect. Amen? So what we're going to do here is try to establish the validity of the historical account of the resurrection. So let's go to the rest, record of history and see what we have to find. Here are eight lines of evidence to establish the historical fact of the empty tomb. Okay? The handout is on that back chair. Okay, so let's begin by going to the empty tomb. The burial supports the empty tomb. The tomb location was known during that day. Now, I don't know if they exactly know exactly where Jesus was born, but they would have then, okay? Because Mary went there. Buried. Buried. Did I say born? Okay, thank you. Where he, was, where he was buried, because Mary went there on early on the first day of the week. And the other ladies who were preparing the body went, went to the burial site on the first day of the week to finish what they started on Friday, right? So the, the tomb location was known because the Roman soldiers were also sent to guard that spot. So it's not like they hid him away somewhere private. It was a public location. They knew it. The soldiers knew it. The disciples knew it. The ladies knew it. So the disciples could, could not have preached the resurrection without the empty tomb. Historical scholars agree that the burial of Jesus is one of the best attested to facts of history. 
The burial of Jesus Christ in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested to facts about Jesus. This is John A.T. Robinson, The Face of God, page 130, page 131. So there's that. Number two, Paul confirms the empty tomb. Most Bible scholars agree that Paul was quoting a gospel formula in verses 3 and 4 that was not original with Paul, but an early source. Most likely, Paul was quoting, there's two seats right here. Right down front. Paul was quoting, possibly from an earlier source that dates to within six years of the crucifixion. And historians consider a reliable source that dates as far back to the event that is being studied. Like on 9-11, as soon as those planes hit, I mean, every cell phone was out and they were looking. So you had seconds and all those eyewitnesses and TV. So therefore, 9-11 is a historical event. So we had people that were there that saw it. So they have a uh, what's called is the gospel formula here that in three verses three and four. For I delivered to you first of all that which was seen I also received. This sounds like a, some sort of an early gospel creed. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by the five hundred brethren at once. Okay? So, what year was Jesus crucified in? Go through the 490 days in your head, 457, 30, 27, and then 31, then 34. So Jesus was crucified in 31 AD. Okay, So most Bible scholars agree that what Paul was quoting in verses 3 and 4 was an early Apostles' Creed, that it was not original with Paul's work. Paul was quoting a Christian creed that dates to within six years of the resurrection. And if Paul was quoting with, from a source that dates to within six years from the event, that shows that the resurrection of Jesus and the crucifixion is a well-known historic point in history. Okay? Next, Paul confirms the empty tomb. The resurrection then was not a later legendary development but something that was rooted early in Christianity. If we have the fact attested to of the empty tomb within six years of the death of Jesus, then there is no time for legendary embellishment. If it was a common... I mean, you can't embellish 9-11. We all saw it. I mean, I remember where I was that day. I was in Pickerington laying block on a four-course foundation. I used to be a block layer in my early 20s. This means that people who lived just after Jesus went to heaven would be able to take people to the empty tomb and there they would not find anything, right? So, moving on to number four. Mark's account is simple. Mark was the first gospel written. I don't know if you knew that. He was the first um, gospel author to the church in Rome. Mark's account is simple and lacks legendary development. Contrast with later forged accounts. Notice Mark 15:42. This is a very straightforward explanation of the facts. Mark 15:42. 
Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. And by the way, just a note on the Sabbath. If the Sabbath would have been changed to Saturday to Sunday, this was written some 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. If Jesus changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, or, or apostle or a prophet did, that text would read a whole lot different. That was written 30 years after, after the cross. So that makes the Sabbath um, argument more strong. Right. And Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead because normally crucifixions took a long time. Okay? But when you have the sin of the world upon your shoulders and you are experiencing separation from your father the first time, see, and I always make this point, some of us go two, three weeks, months without having worship. Jesus went without worship for one day and it killed him. Wow. Okay? Verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was already dead in summoning the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead. I mean, when I say worship, I mean connection with his father. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him and down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Okay, so this sounds like a straightforward historical account. There is no legendary embellishment. What's legendary embellishment? Okay, you're out hunting in, in the woods and you point your gun and you sneeze and you shoot and you actually hit the buck. He actually had two points, but then when you tell the story to your grandkids, 40 years later, he had eight points, and I aimed at him, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said, it's you or me, bucko, right? And you just, you add, you add, right, right, you add parts to the story every time you tell it, just like when you tell the story about the guy you beat up in high school, right? Anyway, so this is a straightforward account. There is no extra details, and once it's written, the story doesn't change, right? So let me show you what legendary embellishment looks like. This is from the apocryphal gospel of Peter, which dates to about 125 AD. This is a little different than Mark's account. Gospel of Peter, 125 AD. Okay, apocryphal means dark, which is the opposite of inspired. Okay? Suddenly in the night, this is describing the resurrection. Suddenly in the night, there rings out a loud voice from heaven, and two men descend from heaven to the tomb, to the stone over the, over the door, rolls back by itself. What does the Bible say happened? An angel. Okay? Angels did it. Rolled back by itself, and they go into the tomb. Three men come out of the tomb. Two of them are holding up the third man. The two heads of them reach up into the clouds, but the head of the third man reaches beyond the clouds. Then the cross comes out of the tomb, and a voice from heaven asks the cross, Have you preached to them that sleep? And the cross answers, Yes. Oh, wow. Legendary embellishment. 
That's what it sounds like. Okay. So there is another, um, there is another uh, uh, pseudepigraphal, apocryphal text just like this. That sh- those of you who I gave the flash drive, it's called the Gospel of Isaiah. It's kind of like this. You can go read the whole thing. You'll love it. On page 19 of the Gospel of Isaiah, it has, a, it has Jesus coming out of the tomb, sitting on the shoulders of Michael and Gabriel. Okay? So the idea here is that when the story is told through the centuries, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But when you read the Gospel account, I mean, the Scriptures are going to say the same thing every time you open it. Right? So, but when you look at the gospel accounts, it's just a simple story containing facts. Number five, Paul confirms the empty tomb. It is doubtful that Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, and the man who supplied the tomb would, would, um, would be invented by their early Christian tradition. Okay? The Sanhedrin and its 70 members were well known, and this invention then is highly unlikely, and this further supports the empty tomb story. This would have been somewhat of an embarrassment for the disciples because it was the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. If the story was made up, why would a member of the Sanhedrin go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus and then put him in his own new tomb. You see see the point? That would be totally embarrassing. So why would they make up the story, especially when the person who gave up the tomb was part of the condemnation party? Right? So the tomb, now ladies, don't be offended by this, but in biblical times, they didn't count for much. They were basically property. They were greater than the men. I'll take that. Okay. The tomb was discovered by women. Now, women in a court of law could not even serve as legal witnesses in the first century Jewish economy. So when it says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established, that was men. Okay. Women occupied a low space on the socioeconomic scale. Now, why does it matter that women could not serve as legal witnesses? Jesus elevates women. Not above men, but as equals. That Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, the disciples were like, oh, you know, you're, you're, what are you doing with her, right? Because, see, that these, these, these feminazis should understand that Jesus, in his, in, in his ministry, elevated women to equality with men, okay? So if they were going to make the story up, they would have had two men, not just men, like a senator or somebody really important, right? A, a centurion or somebody really important would, would go and see Jesus. But the fact that two women um, were there to see the empty tomb first gives the story credibility because they surely would not include that fact had it was a story that they had made it up, okay? A later legendary development on the account would surely have had men, probably disciples, discover the tomb, okay? The secular historian looks at this story and thinks if they made the story up, they probably would not have made it up that way, okay? So, number seven, the disciples could not have preached the resurrection had the tomb not had been empty. 
that the Christian belief about the resurrection of Jesus began not in some distant city in Asia Minor, but in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus had been crucified and buried, is significant. So if they said he would have been buried in Germany or someplace way far away, that, that could be easily covered up. He was crucified right outside the city and buried right in Jerusalem. That would be the hardest place to cover up the whole thing, wouldn't it? Okay, So this would have been where the empty tomb would have been the easiest to disprove. Okay, It's not that the story of the resurrection began at all. The significance of the story is that the resurrection began in Jerusalem. If it was later legendary embellishment, all the religious leaders would have to do is go back to the tomb where Joseph had Jesus buried and see the body. But guess what? He wasn't there, right? If he is in the, in the tomb, game over. Christianity is a bunch of garbage, and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were right all along. Okay? So, Pull out the body, show everyone in Jerusalem, and Christianity is a bunch of ridiculous foolishness. Okay? So, the earliest Jewish propaganda against the disciples presupposes an empty tomb. Again, the, <coughs> the earliest Jewish propaganda about the resurrection of Jesus was that the disciples stole the body. However, this line of reasoning is problematic because... For the Sanhedrin, they told everyone to say that the body was stolen. That presupposes that the tomb was empty. Right? Yeah. That we'll get into them in a minute. Further, how could they get past the Roman soldiers? <laughs> on the next day, see, see, that's your you're tracking, brother. Hit that. Put that on the fridge, right? On the next day. Uh, which followed the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, I will, after three days, rise. Therefore, the tomb, he, he commanded that the tomb be made secure. I mean, politically, it would be really bad for Pilate, for Jesus to resurrect, because there was an election year coming up. We're told that in Desire of Ages, right? Therefore, command the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way and make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now watch this. Verse 11, Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests, all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples, this is after the resurrection, tell him that his disciples came at night, stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. What happened to Roman soldiers if they did not complete their task or if they fell asleep on duty? Why would the Roman soldiers have any 
motivation to say that they stole their body. They wouldn't. Because their life depended on fulfilling their mission. And so now they were, they, were, they were bought with hush money and the whole thing is swept under the carpet. Okay? This is called politics. Okay? These eight lines of evidence establish solidly the historical fact of the empty tomb. Now, I think what we just shared is very, very plain. Okay? To the honest person, this is enough. But there are people in history that have um, come up with objections. And now we're going to deal with those objections. Are there reasons that secular historians may give for the empty tomb? The answer is yes. Number one, the conspiracy theory. Plenty of that going around today. Number two, the apparent theory, the apparent death theory that he appeared to die, that he didn't actually die. The cool tomb theory where he went in to the grave and the coolness of the tomb resuscitated him and he came out. Okay. Then there's, oh, they got the wrong tomb theory, right? <laughs> then there's the mass hallucination theory. Let's go one by one. The conspiracy theory. What was the emotional condition of the disciples immediately after the crucifixion? Were they just clear? They were in deep, dark depression because their hopes had been centered on Jesus being the earthly king, right? They should have known because of Daniel 2 that he was going to be a sacrifice and that the earthly king part was when the rock hit the feet, not during the legs of iron. Y'all pick that up? Yeah. Okay, that's important stuff right there. Because the legs of iron was what? Rome. And the rock hit the image on the feet, and that's the setting up of God's kingdom on the feet, not during the legs of iron. So because of Daniel 2, they should have known that the, that the kingdom of the Messiah was not earthly, that he was to be a sacrifice, just like Isaiah 53. But their hopes of being out from underneath the Roman rule overruled the things that they learned in prophecy. They went into depression. Now, this is not, it is not psychologically possible that they could have concocted this theme because further, this would be a large red X against the sincerity of the disciples. Okay? Why would anybody go to their death? You know, James was beheaded, Peter was crucified upside down, and all the disciples died a martyr's death except who? John. John. And it wasn't because the devil didn't try. Okay? Domitian put him in a cauldron of boiling oil in his court, but he wouldn't burn. Right? And so he was sitting soft to Patmos because God was not finished with him yet. And then later on, um, the emperor died and the prisoners on the island of Patmos were released and John went back to his home church of Ephesus. And there he died. So he's the only one who, who died natural causes. Okay? Why would anybody die a martyr's death for something they just made up? It doesn't make any sense. Okay? Why would they die if it was just a lie? Wouldn't they, when that axe was about to come down, wouldn't you say, wait a minute, we made it up! <laughs> wouldn't you do that? Okay, so that, there's that. Now, this is another book that if I were you, I would buy this. This is a very good book. So the two books that I'd tell you to get, this Google Anything by William Lane Craig. He's one of the best Christian apologists there is living. 
and Ravi Zacharias, who died a little bit ago, he was one of the really greats as well. This, this guy, Norman Geisler and Frank Turek, wrote a book together called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. <laughs> it's a really good book. I have it. Some of this is from that. On, on, uh, in this book, it says, Why would the apostles lie? If they lied, what was their motive? And what did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. Okay? So this is from a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So if they made up the story of the resurrection, what in the world would they die for it? Okay? Number two, the apparent death theory. This is physically, this is unacceptable because it's physically impossible. The night before Jesus was crucified, he had not eaten or slept. He was dragged from court to court because they couldn't find anything wrong with him. And the people that they brought him to, the judges were like, we know that this is politically motivated. We know that this fulfills some purpose of yours. So you take him to Herod, you take him to this place, you take him to that place, right? So the night before Jesus was crucified, he didn't eat or sleep. Also, before the trial, he was tortured before he was crucified. So that Simon of Niger, or Cyrene, had to carry his cross, right? Because he fell under the burden. So to say that he only appeared to die is what one of my professors, Lyle Caesar and Andrews, called intellectual nincompoopery. Okay? <laughs> Number three, the cool tomb theory. Now this is just straight stupid. All right. The idea that a cool tomb resuscitated the body of Jesus is another idea that is positive. This is called intellectual dishonesty, in my opinion. Okay? Think about the physical torture Jesus endured during the trial proceedings, let alone the crucifixion. Jesus would have been an absolute picture of horror. Beaten 40 times, minus one, beard plucked out, punched, kicked, spat upon, all of this, and then he comes out of the tomb. Hey, I'm here, right? You know what I'm saying? He would have been a bloody, just mess. Hardly a picture of victory, right? But this is what some liberal scholars say, that we don't have a beautiful, glorified resurrection. We have him walking out of the tomb, limping, and then his people cared for him. That, that, I mean, that just sounds, that just drips of political and insincerity, right? So we would have someone that needed to go to the ICU rather than getting ready to go to heaven. Okay, and then here's, here's the wrong tomb theory. Here lies Jesse, not Jesus, right? So this is unacceptable because all they would have had to do was ask Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the big, big wigs in, in Jerusalem's religious economy, hey, Hey, uh, Joseph, where's it at? Well, go down the street, turn the corner, there it is. They would have known exactly where it was, right? It is not unlikely that as smart as these guys were memorizing the Old Testament, oh, uh, I just forgot where the tomb was. You know, does that, does that sound just ridiculous? It sounds stupid. Okay. I mean, this was his family plot. He spent his own money having the, the rock hewn out I'm pretty sure he would remember where he had paid somebody to hew a rock. I mean, how long does it take to hew a tomb out of the side of a mountain? 
that's not cheap, right? So even a casual inspection would have revealed that they would have easily found the tomb. And then number five, there's the mass hallucination theory. Maybe all of the disciples were just hallucinating when they saw Jesus appear to them. Okay? There's problems with this. This has, been con this has been the concoction of recent liberal scholars because they can't allow the resurrection to be true. Because if it is, they have to change their life. Okay? This is unacceptable for many reasons. Is there any such medical documentation for any type of mass solution? Furthermore, how many times did Jesus appear to his, to his people? Several. So they would have had to hallucinate, not once, not twice, not three, but four, five, six times. You understand the problem with this, with this theory, okay? But even if, even if the hallucination was true and they, they hallucinated that Jesus was there, well, all they would have to do is go to the tomb and see the body laying right there, game over. So the hallucination thing is just, it's just a bad attempt to get out of this, okay? So we have looked at the fact of the empty tomb. Now let's look at the post-resurrection appearances. Okay, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 8, Jesus appeared to Peter, the 12, 500 brethren, James, all the apostles, and Paul. So every last one of these would have had to hallucinate. At different times. Okay? So... Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 is that there is a bodily resurrection, not a hallucination. So in fact, all the resurrection um, accounts in the Gospels say that Jesus would bodily resurrect. Okay, And here, here it is again, that he's seen by Cephas, seen by the 500, seen by James, and then at last seen by Paul, probably on the road to Damascus. This means that 513 people saw Jesus. After he resurrected, yeah. He left Mary out in the garden when he disappeared to her. Oh, I, I mean, okay. Yeah, very good. Here's, here's two more that shows people seeing Jesus' body after the resurrection, okay? And then, ma'am? After eight days, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came to the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Um, then he said to them, Thomas, reach in, um, look at my hands and reach your hand and put it into my side. Be not believing, but unbelieving. Okay, so there's that. Luke 24, 9, behold my hands and my feet, handle me. So spirits don't have hands and feet. It was a body. It was actually Jesus. Okay. You know, I, I think Thomas being the doubter shows that he was hallucinating and had the capacity for um, abstract yeah. critical thought. You are on a roll today, young man. Okay. So how are you going to reach and put your hand in, into the side of a hallucination? doesn't make any sense. So the bottom line here, friends, is this. The, the origin of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. We cannot account for the rise of the Christian church and the staying power of the Christian church without the resurrection. There was no predisposition now. This is big stuff right here. There was no predisposition in the Jewish mind to believe in the death or resurrection of the Messiah because the Pharisees believed in an afterlife. The Sadducees did not. That's how Paul got out of a trial one time because he, he turned the attention from him to whether or not there is a resurrection and then he just kind of weaseled right out of it 
because he was smart. That's right. So there was no predisposition in the Jewish mind to believe in the Messiah resurrecting because all of Jerusalem thought that the Messiah was going to be a king and take them on battles against Rome. The Messiah was a king, not a crucified and resurrected savior in the Jewish mind, right? So there was no predisposition in the Jewish mind to believe in the death or resurrection of the Messiah. Therefore, a resurrection by the Messiah was, was, was not an anticipated event for the Jews in Christ's day. Okay? That's a typo. I need to switch that. So, what did the Jews believe about the Messiah? Okay? It is not that somebody rose from the dead. I want to emphasize this. It's that Jesus rose from Nazareth from the dead. He said things like this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That means salvation is not by Muhammad. Salvation is not by Confucius. Salvation is not by Vishnu or Shiva or the Dalai Lama. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. And everyone else outside is a thief or a robber. So this pluralism that we see today, this postmodern, well, that's true for you, but this is true for me, Jesus knew nothing of that. Okay? So when someone says there are no moral absolutes, don't let them get away with that because what they have just done is made an absolute. There are no moral absolute is an absolute. Okay? He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. So friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the claims that Jesus made of himself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the claims that Jesus made as Savior of humanity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the claims of the Christian faith. And the, the resurrection of Jesus vindicates the rise and staying power of the Christian faith. Any questions on what we just went over? Does the... the the rock smashing the feet also correlate to the Garden of Eden, bruising of the heel. Okay. So the rock smashing the feet represents the setting up of God's kingdom, right? Because okay. Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall not be destroyed. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Amen. Right? And Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Okay? okay. So the, the bruising of, of the heel by the serpent to Jesus represents Jesus dying and then being in the grave. But the crushing of the head represents the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. And then Romans 16, verse 20, Paul extends the crushing of the head to the church. Somebody look that up. Romans 16, verse 20. Yeah, it says, May the God of peace bruise Satan under your feet shortly. 
Okay? So Jesus cr crushed the head of Satan, and then he extends the crushing of the, ser of the serpent's head to the church. So I don't know if I can connect those two verses. Because one is setting up an earthly kingdom at the second coming, and then you understand that the rock becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. When does that happen? It's after the millennium. So the rock hitting the image is one phase of God's kingdom, and then there's a thousand years, and then the earth is destroyed, and then the saints come out of the city and inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. So the rock hitting the image is one phase of it, and then the thousand years, and then the destruction of the wicked, and then God creating earth too, that's another phase of it. The rock became a mountain and filled the whole earth. Yep. Okay, anything else? Thank you guys so much for coming all week. This has been a lot of fun. You guys have been a lot of, it's been a good, good class, lots of energy. So give yourselves a hand. All right, let's have a closing. Did I pray yet? Closing prayer. Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that we've had here this week. This is what camp meeting is all about, studying the word on a deep level. Lord, we just ask that your spirit would be with us and that you would be with the, the homes and the churches that are represented here in this room, that you would pour your spirit out on each, each of us individually and minister to us according to our needs. Give us courage to find Bible studies. Give, give us courage to give Bible studies. And give us courage and faith to be in ministry despite our weakness and despite ourself. Lord, we ask that you would give each person in this room a soul to win this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. You guys are all responsible now. <laughs> Got to teach the truth. Share what you learn. Whatever is here is I don't, I, I don't what's what's there. If I've given you if I've given you my series here, you have all the handouts. I just get rid of the paper copies. You have the word. So here's. This is all of them. Yep. 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 All the handouts are all there. Were you by chance offering any of your Job files for sharing? If you, if, if you have a, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna. It's, it's called. It's called the problem of human. Did you already give me your flash drive? No, I didn't. But anything specific to the, especially like when Job said, uh, "You slay me." Uh, wait a minute. Though you slay me, I'll still yeah. follow you. Um, now, what was the other point yesterday? This should be so forefront in me. Forgive me. Um, Job. Um, he, he was. He made a mistake when he said. Uh, when he, he didn't understand. The Lord gives and the Lord takes yes, away. That's it. Yeah. If you got one, that you probably have more than one. But I just want to go with what you, whichever one you want to share. But if you particularly covered that topic, I'd be. That'd be my okay, I'll give you. Place. I'll give you my my whole series on oh, the problem of human suffering. And well, I can't thank you enough for this to share your work like that. It, it's it used to be not so common. It is becoming more common, and I'm really thankful for it. I, I do make some presentations myself, not not probably 
the number that you do, not even close, maybe, but uh, it takes a lot of time. <laughs> Did I understand you say uh, covering the things that Job said about suffering? Does it seem to match with what we should be believing? Well, with, let's see, what was the verse? Oh, hey, thanks, Aaron. He, he just, he just named Enjoyed your comments, too. Oh, he, um, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Particular to that, and he he wasn't he he said it in ignorance of that he was being tested by Satan there, and that the Father allows for such things, but he's yeah he did a great job of explaining it yesterday. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask my ministerial director if I can do a seminar next year at camp meeting just on the problem of human suffering. Just that. Oh. You know, it, I, this year was a little different, but so often it's like, the three I want, they're all in the same, same time slot. No. What's your tip? You're at Claire, right? Claire and Edenville. Okay. Yeah, Claire and Edenville. Oh, I got it right here. Right? Claire and Edenville? Yep. And where was the other one that you were at? Before? Troy. Troy. Mm -hmm. She was a church member. Is a church member at Troy. All right. I wish it wasn't so far away. I'd love to come to your church. Where, where's your? Um, in Muskegon. I live in Twin Lake, but I go to Muskegon. So. Well, I'm sure you have a good. Maybe I'll come and visit you sometime. I'm sure you have a great pastor there. Yes, we do. Who is your pastor? Pastor Kirkpatrick, Larry Kirkpatrick. Okay. Yeah. Before then, it was Pastor Jason Slager and uh, Cameron DeVazier. Oh, yeah. So, okay. yeah, we've had some good ones. Is this the updated one? Oh, the Old Testament? Yeah. No, that's, I never changed anything on that one. Oh, you did The only one I changed was why we believe the Bible. That was the only one we changed. And so, is there the... That's... That's the old one. Did you not get That's one? I got, um, no. You never got one? No. I'll email it to you. Oh, okay. My goodness. Okay. Do you have a flash drive? I'll just email it to, to you. Yeah, I gotta get a flash drive. Problem of human suffering. And then I'll give you my Bible studies here. We ended five minutes early. I'm tired. I didn't want to go and do anything else. Yeah, it's quarter to five. <laughs> when, it, when we ended, it was 1025. Time for dinner. What? I can't hear you. Your guy, I think it's at Best Buy. You have a guy that gets you really great deals. We need a computer. So I'm going to go to your guy. I don't really have a guy at Best Buy. Oh, I just I just go and look for open box items and then ask for a 10% discount on top of it. And half the time they're they're weirded out that you ask them that and they give it to you just to get over the experience. I'm not kidding. What when I got my TV that I, when I saw there I got a 65 inch TV that was that was open box item and had the had the it's something that has been taken home, set up, returned because it wasn't what they wanted or whatever. And it has a power cord and the remote, and that's all you need, right? And 
it was already on sale for like 470 or something like that. Oh, you need my. <laughs> and then I had a $35 certificate because of someone stuff I bought from the church. And there you go. And. Um, to listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.